1: I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host, a graduate of Trinity University and University of Incarnate Word, where she earned her master's in gerontology, one of seven people in the nation with a <laughs> thank master's you very, in
2: Thank you gerontology. very much. I was told I was the only one that had a job, though.
1: That's true. That's cool. I was an English major in undergraduate school, and I'm working, so there.
2: there we Most are not. People. That's why both of us are doing a radio show <laughs> exactly. right now.
1: You're exactly right about that. Carol is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and each week she and I come to you with Caregiver SOS on air, and we're going to talk in just a couple of moments with Priya Sony, a woman who cared for her dad who was never really diagnosed with a very debilitating disease, ultimately in 12 years killed him, and from that... Uh, she grew a company that tries to help and consult with caregivers. So we'll talk with her about that.
2: That's right. This is, an, this is an experienced caregiver.
1: Yes, absolutely. Even with thousands of dollars and more spent trying to find a diagnosis that they never got. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. But first off, uh, if you are receiving a Social Security check, Carol has some information you may not want to hear.
2: Well, well, but it's good to know. So, uh, you know, I, I was reading the archives from Kiplinger uh, Personal Finance Magazine, and they were saying, you know, every once in a while, we get all excited about Social Security, and then when the check arrives, whoops. You know, what happened. So I thought they had a couple of interesting things that you may not know.
1: Yes, it's smaller than you thought it would well, be.
2: Yes, it might be small. So one of the things is when you when you're eligible for social security and you file and you think, yay, this you know, I'm gonna get this check right off the bat. Well, Social Security pays the first time the first time you get a benefit is the month after you file. So you can't file in in. June and expect to get the check in June. So you're going to have to wait a little bit. They haven't been waiting on you to file. You know, you're you're going to process all that paperwork. They're and not so, sitting
1: there with that check ready to go. Not, it's
2: not yet. It wasn't. You know, just just cut. And the other thing, and this I did not know. So what about those who wait? You know, you hear about that eight um, percent a year if you're eligible to retire at age. Um, you know, there's 62. You can take early. 65 is normal. But for those of us. Uh, boomers you know it's a little bit further down the line 66 67 to get your uh, full benefit but if you wait until even the longer that you wait up to age 70 you're getting this bump you know like a 8% of your bump well guess what you're the first check that you get after you've waited to age 69 to get your Social Security isn't gonna have the bump in it it mm. takes a year for all that extra time that you waited for them to process the additional Wow! so that you know that that little flyer that you get that tells you how much social security you're probably eligible for so they've calculated your retirement based on your traditional retirement age and all that the eight percent the 16 percent more that you're getting actually doesn't show up for a ye- it can be a year that i did not know
1: i did not know either
2: i know we're frowning at each other like, and if you why? go belly up you don't
1: get it anyhow
2: well yeah so the
1: longer you wait you, you run the risk of how long you're going to live
2: it is a numbers game there's definitely a numbers game um and and the other thing on the on like so let's say you're a spouse um and you your loved one passes away and that your loved one was the one collecting the social security so if your spouse died uh, let's say march 30th and you get a check from social security a few days later in april uh, bad news you are going to have to return that check because Social Security says you must be alive the entire month to qualify oh. for the social Security payment. and so if you're very heavily reliant on that social security check, you may need to know that that benefit is going to be a different benefit than the check that you got in the mail wow. and you do need to return it. Uh,
1: and it's usually
2: less. Uh, yes, it usually is less if if, um, survivor you're the, sur- if you're the spouse yeah with the survivor benefit. So, you know, the good thing is the Social Security website, if you go to socialsecurity.gov, they have an excellent website, lots of good information. If you haven't retired yet, they've got a wonderful calculator that you can use. So Social Security is one of those things we think we understand and know, um, and all of us are probably missing a few tidbits of information. So go to socialsecurity.gov and and take a look at their website.
1: And while you're doing that, you figure you're going to cut down on the sugar, so you're going to pick up a diet soda.
2: <laughs> okay, this is the week you cannot win, all right? New York Times, two articles. The first one, sugary drinks. Sugary drinks are tied to accelerated brain aging. So this what we this Bam. is not, you know, new news to us um, that drinking sugary beverages is, you know, can accelerate possibly Alzheimer's disease. And, and this is a study of 4,000 people over the age of 40. What you may not be defining as sugary beverage is fruit juice. So sugary beverage does not necessarily mean a soft drink. It means a sugary drink. And a lot of fruit juices fall into that category. Um, and there's some, you know, waters that they, you know, Throw all kinds of carbohydrates into it, um, but the more sugar you consume, the lower total brain volume. It's making your brain shrink. Oh, all that sugary goodness is shrinking your good for you. is shrinking your brain, and that's never good. So reduced brain volume um, is the equivalent of of 1.6 years of normal aging. So you know you, you can lose up to 1.6 years with your shrunken brain. Huh. And, and you're going to have worse memory. This is not good. And so you think, oh, I should have a diet drink. I should stay away from the sugar. Okay, enter article number two.
1: Up next on Caregiver SOS on air, if you've just joined <laughs> us, I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernil on 930 AM. The answer. All right, you give up the sugar drinks. You, you go, go to, to diet,
2: diet drinks. Diet drinks, headline, diet drinks tied to dementia and stroke. Oi. Uh, Oi. Oh, no. So this is a new study. <laughs> same same group of, of research. I, research, I believe. It was in the Stroke Journal. And they found that people who drink diet soda, uh, um, people who drink one to six artificially sweetened drinks a week, a week, not a, a week. day, a week, had twice the risk of stroke. And so, and you know, they, there is a link for dementia, but the stroke increase is pretty substantial. And after they adjusted it for you know age and and sex and physical activity and diabetes and all of those things So
1: sex is out
2: too? <laughs> oh, no, they were adjusting it for male and female. Oh, gender. Yes, gender. Thank you. Thank you. So what's the bottom line for for this week? Drink water. I I have a McDonald's cup which I you see. would normally think would be ooh, bad, but I have iced tea in there. And in that's beer. okay. And about a year ago I switched to iced tea. Unsweet. Unsweet. And, and there are actually health benefits to a variety of teas. I don't know if McDonald's tea is, is a green tea that's good for you, but there are a lot of teas. Caffeine and coffee have been shown to have health benefits. So if you're just confused as all heck about what to drink, coffee, tea, water, eh, those are probably good choices. Fruit juices, sugary drinks, diet drinks, eh, probably not.
1: See, it used to be on the airlines, coffee, tea, or milk. Not anymore.
2: Well that's because they they're here. There's a say <laughs> A you don't get anything or you B, they better give you something of interest, you know, on the airplane because you otherwise you're gonna you know, bad things. It's it's just no fun flying anymore.
1: I have a friend who is a flight attendant and she says that passengers have become increasingly surly.
2: Yes, we probably <laughs> we, that may be true. <laughs> yeah, actually. I think it's true. It could be true.
1: Well, because you expect to be mistreated.
2: I know. It's become like the old buses, you know, the bus. Uh, I right. haven't taken the bus. Right. Uh, Greyhound, or I don't even know if they're still in business. Yeah, they're still around. Still in business. Yeah. One of them's gone. Continental, I guess, is the one that's gone.
1: My dad had a good line. I'd come home someday from practice, you know, complaining about the coach, and he'd say, well, why don't you just go right back to school and punch him in the nose? And i say, well, how's that going to help anything? I can't do that. He said, you're right,
2: so quit complaining. <laughs> So there you are. So there so there you are. There you are. Yeah, stop complaining. just sit down in that seat and turn on watch somebody so, else's movie on So their I'm gonna
1: record. go out and run and increase my lifespan.
2: Okay, all right, so this <laughs> I actually liked this article, another one from The New York Times. This is a
1: positive one.
2: Well I liked it because I, I started running you know late in life so to speak. I've seen you running. <laughs> well, I just did our, our charitable foundation, just had our seven hundred five k 700 people, over 700 people wow. came out to run. And I came in third in my age category. Of course... Um, you know Jimmy Keenan who is ma- major general Jimmy Keenan who now works for Wellmed um who was in my age group and who had the stomach flu past me who weighs and, about and an ounce <laughs> <I> pat pa- <laughs> with the stomach flu she beat me by 2 minutes all right i just want to say that's ridiculous well she it's she's, not even nice. she looks like a runner well she is a runner but i'm <laughs> she? A, i'm a lightweight runner but the good news is an hour of running can add 7 hours to your life really is the headline does
1: that hour have to be Contiguous, or could you do 10 minutes it here, so the, 20 minutes there? So the
2: Cooper Institute in Dallas, that you know, the word aerobics, that was invented right. at the Cooper Institute. They were the guys with aerobics. And they recently were replicating, you know, people have been asking about running. Is it good for you? Is it not good for you? How much do you have to run? How fast do you have to run? Um, and what they found out is they could confirm that, indeed, um, running reduces the risk of premature death by 40%.
1: I that's, always love that term, premature death. Yeah, premature. Isn't death always premature? That's even
2: if you smoke and you drink. If you smoke and drink and run, you're actually better off. Um, so that was good. And non-runners, who that was me, a non-runner who takes up running reduces de- your risk of death by 16% and 25% fewer heart attacks for non-runners who take well, up running. That's pretty cool. So that's pretty good. Um, and hour for hour. So an hour invested in running, and you can do it five minutes at a time. They said even five minutes at a time, hour for hours for every hour you get seven hours, huh. you know, added to your life. So if you were running for forty, the next forty years of your life, you know, you only did you actually only ran six months of your life, but you get three point two years, and you were outside running around or on a treadmill meeting other people. Who that's knows? Cool. It could be good.
1: Now you do Zumba now.
2: I do. And
1: and that's all movement does that
2: count too well that's not it should. it's not running but i can tell you that the zumba was the reason that i was doing so much better at our 5k because that's an hour of, of aerobic endurance oh yeah and so that really helped make running pretty easy um, and so you know move, move use it or lose it move that's all i can tell you is you know i started running when my son was learning to ride a bicycle and i felt like an alien trying to catch him and I needed to catch him and so that's when I started. That's funny. And you know I say they say it's not it's never too late five minutes of running add minutes more minutes to your life that's a good investment.
1: We've been trying to teach Reagan how to ride a bike and not to use the curb as her (laughs) brake.
2: Yes because that's uh, kind of a a tough it's a little bit hard yeah it's (laughs) a kind of a barrier more than a brake.
1: Yeah well we're working on it. Priya Sony up next, talking about caregiving and uh, her new company. That's coming your way on Caregiver SOS on air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zernial. You hear us at nine thirty a.m. The Answers Sundays at six p.m. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year twenty ten.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Doctor
1: Robin Eikoff, Ron Aaron, Wellmed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about
3: everything. We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
1: Well, thank you so much for hanging with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron at 9.30 a.m. The Answer with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we're delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Priya Soni, who has a really, really interesting story to tell. CEO of the Caregiving Effect, a platform and service to create a space for adults who've cared for parents, parental figures due to aging, illness, and disability, and is trying to provide help for them and coaching them on how to get on with their lives and a whole lot more. So, Priya Sony, tell us, what do you do?
4: <laughs> um, I am a certified caregiving consultant, and I am also a coach. And so with the caregiving effect, there are two pieces of, of what I do. I coach people currently um, who are in a situation of caring for a family member, and then I also created a program uh, that actually that helps people become mentors from the experience, because the real sort of juice of the caregiving effect is uh, taking our experiences, our sources of learning, um, our wisdom, and our unique insights into what we've been through, and helping support the many that are walking the path of caregiving. So that's that's, that's what I do, um, and I enjoy it immensely, and it's brought a lot of meaning to my life, having been a caregiver to my father over the course of 12 years.
2: So tell us a little bit about your caregiving experience.
4: So uh, it actually started in the fall of 2003, and it started as many things do. My father was feeling a symptom of something, and he had been for a period of time but hadn't gone to the doctor, And it was in his last year and a half of before he retired, and he started to feel some stiffness in his legs. We went to multiple, multiple doctors and had a lot of tests that either came out negative, normal, or um, just undetermined. And what doctors could come up with was that it was a neurological condition that doctors would never be able to diagnose. And so we were living in a world of questions for for several years and then in a world of acceptance all really sort of headed by my dad and he just really got to a point where he realized that like, this is just what my life is going to be like so I'm either gonna have to make it a great one or have one where it's going to be extremely difficult for the rest of my life and for my family's life well, how is it affecting um, his
1: and, quality of life
4: well it was 12 years so there was an arc of the experience so initially it was okay he's walking differently we can handle that and then it was okay he needs a walker now and then okay so we can work with that and then it was a wheelchair uh, a power chair actually um, and sort of navigating around that and making sure he had like an environment that he could navigate with the with the wheelchair with a power chair and then it was him losing his ability to speak so he had speech aphasia and so we never really knew what phases were coming our way because we didn't really have a journey with it, given it was pretty much a mystery illness uh, to doctors, to us. Um, and we were learning as we were going, as what happens a lot in the caregiving experience as it is. Um, and then it was him not being able to balance on his own at all or walk at all. Um, and it was 24 hours, seven days a week
2: caregiving. So you never so found out what process. was wrong with him.
4: No, we didn't. Well, that we is didn't.
2: unusual. I don't think we've ever had a caregiver on the show that, you know, mm-hmm. that had the big question mark for the entire caregiving experience. That sounds terribly frustrating.
4: It is until it isn't. So it is. So it, it, it's an interesting sort of experience where you, you go through so many different phases with it. I went through the phase where I was obsessively looking and just trying to figure out any sort of nugget of information that i could that i could work with uh and then it just become became a way of life and this is just a lot in my father's life in our life and um and it became about choices and how we were going to actually review our choices with what we did have um but yeah it was it was frustrating it was a moments uh, there was a moments of like it was traumatic at moments and uh And then there were, like, these interesting moments of creativity mixed with all of that um, and things that I could sort of pull from, like, tools of my own life. So, for example, when my father lost his ability to speak, um, we had to figure out ways for him to communicate, and one way we figured out was sign language, American sign language. And I had had a background with American sign language. I had taken it in high school throughout college. And just um, had different experiences with it throughout life, and so I was able to teach him certain words in certain ways, and it became like these, like creative sort of um, ways to communicate with each other. And then teaching that to our family and teaching that to our community, who would actually, uh, who would actually meet with him, so he could feel like he was heard. Um, and or there was like a moment when my sister found a application we could put on an iPad and he would type in what he was thinking or, or feeling um, or something he wanted to just share with with people and then he would just press play and there would be an automated voice that would share out what it was that he had typed um, so it's just interesting sort of dichotomy of, of an experience where it builds creativity and problem solving and management <laughs> um, experience. And then it also has an emotional uh, and mental component that's, um, that really tends to get us a lot where it can also be uh, manifested through just frustration and anxiety and a lot of other, um, a lot of other emotions.
1: So that went on for 12 years or so and then he just died?
4: Yeah, it went on for 12 years, and for an illness that took a long time to sort of move through him um, and took us on a journey, wow. it really, in his last, uh, I guess, few days, it, it happened quite quickly. So I had, it, was, it happened in January of 2015, so it's been two and a half years. And so I had just uh, come home for the holidays and then, you know, returned back to the East Coast. Um, and... Uh, my mother called me and said your father's taken a turn for the worse now you know putting that in perspective dad wasn't really doing too well for about a good couple of years it was pretty sort of like we weren't really sure what what direction he'd be going in um he really wanted to hold on to life and he had he just felt like he had a lot of life because mentally he was still there um he had a lot of life left in him uh but then when i arrived um uh I noticed like just a bit of a change, but within 24 hours that magnified, uh, and within about 24 hours from the time that I arrived, he passed away. So I'm assuming for me.
1: I'm assuming the neurologist ruled out ALS.
4: Yeah, so that he did rule that out. That was one of the things that was mentioned. Um, I think cerebellar ataxia, um, Parkinson's was mentioned. Uh, uh, multiple huh. systems atrophy, uh, a lot of different sort of neurological conditions uh, were mentioned. But again, tests were either negative, normal, or inconclusive.
1: So out of this, and by the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, and we're talking with Sonia uh, Priya, Sonia, about uh, her organization, the caregiving effect. We'll talk about that as well. But But out of the... Uh, situation with your dad, you became uh, much more proactive in caregiving and in trying to reach out to help caregivers?
4: Yes, yes. Um, so when you go through an experience, especially for that long, there's just the reflection period doesn't always happen as much as you'd like it to. And so when he passed away, I finally had some You know, it was a very difficult sort of transition to sort of move out of caring for somebody and then not to have them physically there anymore. Um, But I actually had some time to reflect and breathe. And out of that came uh, just an understanding that I had a unique value add and that I could actually be there. I had a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, um, and things that I felt like I could really lend to people. Um, And it came from, like, being grounded in three areas that I felt would be really necessary for for caregivers and things that I believe that they needed. And that came out of doing a little qualitative uh, research of my own. So I went to go talk to people who had been caregivers to their parents specifically or who had gone through loss and uh, asked them what they needed, how I could help them, what was the most important thing to them in the process, and so much more. And what came out of that, were three different areas that i wanted to focus on one was building community you're having a support system so it was about how do i create a platform that's sharing the voices of others their stories their sources of learning and wisdom um their challenges and so much more and so i created the caregiving effect instagram project so i actually have an instagram project um at Sony on instagram um which shares um pictures of uh, adult children who care for their parents or parental figures and ask like a six-word story and ask them one challenge and how it shaped them. So I wanted to shift the conversation um, from uh, understanding what purposes could come out of the experience which takes me to the second area which is giving purpose. Um, I believe that we're an extension from our all of our experiences and caregiving is no different and so if, if somebody's willing you can really allow something big to develop from an often very painful challenging experience um and so it's you know giving purpose is really just asking yourself like what is what is the making of me from all of this like what comes from this and then it goes to uh to others like how can i be of service and um who can i reach how can i reach them and then the third thing is just realizing that there's a responsibility. Um, there's not a lot of support services out there. And um, creating uh, creating this uh, movement um, of, of caregivers, um, who I call caregiver visionaries, um, I believe that it's, it's so important because there's a responsibility to take – there are so many people. There are over 44 million people in the U.S. alone, and then all around the world there's so much more. And um, – really understanding like that you have a responsibility to take what you've learned and to really help the many that are out there that need it by either building community, asking somebody how you could help, you know, being a caregiver, advocate, a coach, consultant, whatever uh, comes to mind. Um, just building your visibility and letting people know that you're there. I, I do believe that it's a must-have. All right, let's talk um, more about
1: that, this in just a minute. Hang with me just a minute. i going to come right back to you. We're talking with Priya Sony on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline. She is the founder and CEO of The Caregiving Effect. She's got a website, www.priasony.net, and we're going to talk more with her about what this is all about and how it works. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial on 930 AM, The Answer. We are talking with Priya Soni on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. We're on 9:30 a.m. The answer podcasts of our shows are also available. Just go to caregiverSOS.org and you will find the podcast. Carol Zerniel is here, and you had a question.
2: Well, you know, Priya, I was as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, we Ron and I have been doing this show for you know over five years now. Uh, And a lot of times we hear from people who are, you know, reinventing the wheel, so to speak. You know, they didn't know Mm -hmm. that there were services available. They didn't know that anybody else had been through this similar experience. You know, it was this big discovery. And so it sounds like you are, you know, working towards fixing that uh, by Mm -hmm. taking caregivers who have experience and connecting them. Is that right? With caregivers, you know, who might, you know, could use some good pointers along the way. Yeah. So one
4: of the one of the platforms that I have is is to the program that I mentioned earlier is to help people who have been caregivers become mentors, and so it's giving them the tools. It's understanding what my program is called: uncover, discover, recover. So it's uncovering how your life has led you to where you are and how it's sort of organized and set you up for this experience as a whole. And then discover is just discovering your caregiving story and what that means to you really looking at it um, and understanding the the sources of learning from it. And then recover is what I say, recovering a purpose. I believe that there is actually a purpose from this experience. And that purpose um, is and and could be um, being a mentor, to be there because you already have that experience and that knowledge. It's just basically channeling it into how you're going to how you're going to do that. So I do. That's one part of the the work that I do. The other part is being a, a coach did, um, did, and consultant to caregivers.
2: Did you have uh, Did you or your family did you have mentors for you? Was there anyone that you came along in the twelve years that you know was a, a little bit of a guiding light for you?
4: I had my family, but you know, that's different. There's different family dynamics. I didn't really have that person I could just sort of lean in and lean on at the time, uh, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to create this. I remember thinking originally I, I thought, you know, where are our voices? Where are specifically adults who are caring for their parents? It's where there's so many of them out there. Um, where are our voices? So I thought, well, maybe I'll create a platform that's just sharing the stories. And then i had to ask the question for the purpose of what and what came from that was it was for the purpose of us being able to help each other and mentor each other from this experience um because i believe we all have the ability to be champions for each other to be able to, to help each other understand the pain of the experience and to be able to listen to it and honor it but also to be able to understand the other portion of it too so there's something that's actually come from this experience that can actually be And once you address that and once you understand how it serves you, then you can go ahead and serve others.
2: Well, I noticed on the website that you talk a little bit about self-care and you have some recommendations for Mm -hmm. self-care. Could you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, sure. So self-care, it's an interesting thing because I I know people talk about that a lot. And when you're in the process of caring for someone, self-care tends to be Put by the wayside uh, understandably so but there are different things you can do for self-care and the first one I always share is breathe (laughs) Um, and a lot of times I would find myself in the experience of of just sort of going 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 but not really even taking a breath so even if it's two minutes that you have just just breathing and I remember just watching my father and and he had a um, you know lifelong struggle with asthma and then when he had this condition, this neurological condition, um, that only added to the whole asthma experience. And so I remember breath being like this luxurious thing that I used to think was so common that we just have. Um, and so breathing, whether it's whether it's breathing through meditation or mindfulness or med- mindful meditation, um, whatever it might be. So that's that's one way. The other, the second thing is move, movement, walk. You know get outside be around nature um take advantage of of where you where you live take a five-minute break call a friend up and say i just need five minutes of your time and just walk outside that that shifts sort of the mind and it changes the rhythm of your day um and then also one of the other things that i think is really important for self-care is, and how you're taking care of yourself is just your your well-being so it's like what are you eating um, and what are you putting your time into, uh, and uh, and just really looking at the rhythm of that and, and making those choices that are going to only add to your life and, and make you feel good as, um, as you're going through an experience that often can, can really feel defeating at moments.
2: Well, I think that that's, you know, you've distilled... Uh, you, we can always tell when someone, you know, has been a caregiver. But I think you've done a really <laughs> nice job. And you thought about it. Uh, yeah, of distilling yeah. the information because breathing does seem so normal. But we do forget to do it. We just don't realize we're uh, tightened up and not doing any breathing at all. Mm-hmm. And then moving, getting that stress out, uh, and and being thoughtful about, you know, why in the world if you're if you're only eating donuts and junk food and fast food mm-hmm. or not eating, why? How could you not? You know feel badly after or feel bad not not feel good about yourself a you're not eating well and b you're not getting the nutrients that you need so i think that that's that's very practical advice for you know that a lot of us could take to heart
1: how do you work with someone uh, let's say uh, you know we fall into caregiving most of the time it's not something you prepare for plan for Mm -hmm. Uh, it just happens uh, and if someone were to get a hold of you and talk to you and want you to come in and be their coach, uh, how does that work? Mm-hmm. What do you do?
4: Well, first, I start with a 30-minute consultation over the phone to make sure that we're a good fit. Um, and. You know, the people that I that I generally work with are, are in either in a situation where it's, it's of such urgency, um, or they also, especially with my program, they want to find meaning from the experience. So that's the first thing that I do is I have a 30-minute free consultation. Um, and then we just discuss um, where they are in their experience, if they are currently a caregiver, what their needs are um and uh what areas that they want to explore and then i usually send them a survey to help me understand um what works the best for them even ways that could even celebrate even the small successes um and then there's the program that i have um and that really is about finding meaning from your experience and and really being able to to talk to them about um you know their their why's um and what they could contribute to to others as well as themselves the experience of, of working with me i believe it's a partnership
2: and so that conver- well, so. The, the conversation about um you know their experience and 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 finding meeting is that mm. something uh, as their caregiving or is that post caregiving
4: well i think it can happen both ways i think it generally does happen i think the thought process and the reflection process generally does happen after the experience after when somebody's transitioning, um, they've either had a loss or something has shifted with their caree. Um, so it's usually after the the caregiving experience that I tend to work with people with my program.
2: Well, so you were a caregiver. You're working with caregivers. Mm-hmm. Have you mm-hmm. have you you know learned new things? Is there something that was been a surprise to you since you got into this business?
4: That's a great question. I. I am always amazed at how much credit we do not give ourselves. Um, I, you know, there's, this, there's so much that we're doing every single day um, that we don't acknowledge. And so that always surprises me in, in a way where um, a lot of, you know, ever so often I will have a client and, um, and I'll say, let's, let's just actually go through what you have accomplished today. Versus sort of sitting in the in the experience of like feeling like you're not enough, um, and so it's surprising in some ways where um, I feel like that's also an area that um, that we don't do enough of, but we but we feel like we are not enough of. <laughs> um, so that that's been surprising, and what's been uh, wonderful too is to be able to um, connect with the many caregiver advocates out there. I. You know, when I was actually a caregiver for my father, I didn't really also know what was out there. Um, It felt like a very sort of private experience. I wasn't talking about it a lot. And once I actually started to sort of share my experience, a lot of things opened up. So that was just a really beautiful surprise that just built a community that I wish I had done a bit more of while I was going through the experience itself.
1: Now, one of the things that really struck me uh, in a positive sense in your bio was your work at the City University of New York School of Professional Studies, working on a, a variety of settings with women with substance abuse, women who have been... Uh, affected by domestic violence, children and adults with disabilities. There are so many women especially who have experienced uh, domestic violence uh, in -hmm. this community and elsewhere. Uh, The numbers are just astounding. Mm -hmm. You see that in New York as well. I
4: haven't yet worked with Specifically with caregiving and domestic violence. My master's is actually from CUNY uh, School of Professional Studies. And my master's is in disability, but I worked in in uh, with a. Uh with a private house in Los Angeles that was dealing with, with women who have um, been through domestic violence right. and who are currently going through d- domestic violence situations. Um, and I hadn't also crossed over into, to them being car- caring for like either a spouse or, um, or another family member as they were going through it. It would be an interesting sort of intersection um, for me to learn about, given my experience. But uh, one of the things that I did learn again is um is just that, just sort of the abuse factor can be seen in so many different realms. I mean, it's not just physical abuse; it's financial abuse, it's um, it's uh, emotional abuse. There's so many different phases and and um, specific sort of dynamics of the actual experience that you have to get to to learn about, um, which uh, and then you add like carrying on to that process, and that creates a whole nother dynamic um, that feels that feels very hard to leave a situation.
1: Well, we've come across um, doing this show caregivers who have been sexually, uh, physically, emotionally abused uh, oh, by yes. their parents who then end up mm-hmm. being the caregiver.
4: Yes, yes, yes. I have, I actually have had one experience with that, and I've talked to others who have been through experience but have not been current clients of mine. But, um, yeah, I think in those situations, um it's important to really understand that sometimes you can't be the caregiver. Um, there there are boundaries with all of this, and there are actual services that are out there. There are mediators. there are um, there are people that are very um, apt to be able to share with you other services that could that could help and support you through the experience. So it's it really, okay to it really say no. Sort
1: of, it's all right to say it's no.
4: Okay, it's okay to say no. To to say physically, I can't be in the presence uh, and actually do this. But it's at the same point that it's okay to say, yes, let me actually sort of research and find other services that could be of assistance to me and um, this this family member of mine. Well, it's.
2: Mm-hmm. Go, no I would say it, it it sounds like though in your in your work I mean, there's a certain amount of courage that takes to to say no and, and still go on to say yes mm-hmm. and, and help other people um, but it just in yeah. looking at some of the descriptions uh, that you have you know it takes courage also to live deeply at a time when mm-hmm. you are facing such strong emotions that come out during during caregiving and post caregiving
4: yes yes absolutely it does it, it takes courage, I think, to actually sit with the uncomfortable um, and to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Wow. Um, I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. We're and flat. It, it takes practice.
1: <laughs> We're out of time, but can you give us a website people can go to?
4: Sure. It's uh, www.priasoni.net.
1: P R I Y A S O N I. Priasoni. .net. Spelled well, like it sounds.
2: Well, we would love to have you back on the <laughs> show and and hear more about the caregiving effect. I think the more stories you collect, the more people you work with. You know, this is a library of information and a, and a network, a community network that can grow. So we hope you'll be back. Thanks.
4: Well, thank you so much. I'd love that.
1: Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Sony on Caregiver SOS on air. Up next, take ten with Dr. Jamie Heisman. You're listening to us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zirniel. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren, and on and on. So, why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank That's you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach.
1: So, listen to WellMed Radio. And get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. This is cool. It's that time again for Take 10. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10 on 930 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us. On our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline, nationally known psychotherapist deals with both addictions and caregiving, and our co-host Carol Zerniel. So if Dr. Spock... Mr.
2: Spock, not Dr. Spock.
1: I was thinking the baby book.
2: Not the baby book.
1: So if Mr. Spock... The Vulcan. The Vulcan was a caregiver, he was a guy with no emotions,
2: Well, you know, right? that's right, you know, if... I recently wrote a blog about Mr. Spock and, and if, you know, being a Vulcan might be something that would help caregivers out. And, of course, the most obvious is Mr. Spock does not Get tangled up in emotions. And so, Jamie, I think most of us humans uh, don't, uh, you know, we do get tangled up in emotions. We do have a lot of emotional baggage. And it can really throw us for a loop when we are in a caregiving situation. Is that true? Should, you know, what does Mr. Spock have over us?
0: He has the, being a Hollywood character, and you can write about him and write him out if you want. And um, he's black and white. And so so can can tell, you can tell. You tell he's not a geek.
2: You're not rack, You know. You're not rhapsodizing about. Oh, Mister Spock.
0: <laughs> no, no. The beauty of Spock, if he was a caregiver, was that he really would not show anger or resentment. And anger and resentment is is huge emotional issues that we tend to repress as caregivers. Um, I just believe that feelings get caught in that shame and stigma of, of the mind, and I don't think that you know we are attuned to the fact that throughout our lives, whether we're 20 years old or we're 80 years old, that we don't attend to feelings. We repress them. We push them deeper inside of us. We actually act out on unresolved issues. And and then all of a sudden the world of caregiving hits us, something that we know we have no control over at all. And the next thing you know, these emotions start running rampant.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's a surprise. The first time you're new to caregiving, and the first time you get really, really angry, you know, at the person that you're caring for, I think it's, it kind of rattles you. It's it's You weren't expecting that necessarily to happen if you didn't normally have sort of a contentious relationship.
0: Well, Carol, it's not really the person, actually, that we're getting angry at. That's the interesting part about caregiving and, and I know you know as well as a gerontologist, we're really getting angry at a disease and it's not really our loved one so much that certainly they have triggered us in our lifetime and no doubt have had challenges. You know, we've had challenges emotionally with them. But when the disease comes, whether it's Alzheimer's or heart disease or depression, um, it really changes the person. And so we start to take things very, very personally. And the beauty is that if you can separate the disease from your loved one, you can get more like Mr. Spock.
2: Well, I think that's actually, you know, very good advice because so many of us don't see that disease. I know my my own father, when my mother had Alzheimer's, when she was at home, he was very angry with her. Um, But once she was put into a facility, he would say things about all of the residents. Well, that's, you know, that's that Alzheimer's. You know, they're acting that way because the Alzheimer's. And suddenly, the disease was separate from my mother. She was my mother again, uh, and he could distinguish that. But that was a really hard lesson to learn.
1: And the separation, you think, uh, enabled him to see that? He stepped back?
2: He was able to step back, I think, because he wasn't so exhausted and wasn't responsible for the 24-7 kinds of issues. Um, but I think, Jamie, you're right. It's not just with dementia. It's with any disease that, you know, that, you, that we, the person's sick. Um, and they're doing this on purpose, or, you know, they could do better, or we just assign all kinds of things to people who really, this is beyond their control. It's the disease. Well, you know,
0: Carol, uh, there's a truism in psychology that we don't look at enough, and that's that anger is often a cover for sadness, and then it's frequently a lot easier for us to get mad and angry and pound our fists than to cry and, and to grieve and, and, and to really get in touch with the sadness of something again that we can't control. And so that's the beauty of commiserating together. That's the beauty of trying to get into a support group when you're going through this range of emotions as a caregiver, you know, because when you actually commiserate with others, uh, they then can reflect back to you what's going on. And maybe it is sadness, maybe it's not anger. It's a what we call a clinical projection.
1: Yeah, but some caregivers get so angry sometimes violent, sometimes abuse the one who is the care recipient, uh, and they can't control that, or so they think. What drives that?
0: Well, pathology does, clinical pathology. Again, if you're going to go into caregiving and actually go through what you just described, Ron, chances are you were kind of like that before caregiving came around. So the baggage that's accumulated ever since you were a young child that's been unattended to, that you haven't seen a therapist, that you haven't gone to a group, if you will, that you haven't become aware and and transformed yourself, you're going to carry that into this relationship with your loved one. And, you know, Katie, bar the door, because you can really get angry and go postal, if you will, um, when you carry this. That's why it's so vital for us to embrace psychology or embrace a therapist embrace a third party that could be there for us and to hear us cry to hear this if you will just like you said this unruly anger that comes out and allow us to self-examine it in a safe place
2: well you know one of the things that also comes out besides the anger is the guilt you know that's the you know, another up. yeah the the other defining trait of many caregivers is just guilt where does that come from
0: well, we've talked about it, Carol, that guilt is really correlated, again, with the way we treat ourselves. The, the lower our self-esteem is, the higher the guilt. So guilt is a self-care issue. And when we go into uh, the relationship with a loved one that's a caregiver and, and we're not feeling good about ourselves, chances are the guilt is going to be much higher. So becoming really um, you know, self-aware of your own health and your own happiness and your own ability to raise your own self-esteem really will reduce guilt, because guilt is a pandemic with caregiving, um, but we don't realize how much control we have over guilt ourselves just by taking care of ourselves.
1: Now hold that thought. Folks who just joined us may wonder, what are we doing here? This is Take 10. We talk about interesting, difficult, tough issues from time to time, and this is clearly one. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial on 930 AM, The Answer, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Guilt is something that everybody feels to lesser or greater extent, Dr. Jamie?
0: I think so. I think it's more helpless, and things feel hopeless, Ron, and and God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, and Alzheimer's is one of those things that we can't change, or a chronic or terminal illness is something we can't change, is that we always want to do more. I mean, it's our loved one, so we always want to do super, super work, and that's why perfectionism, I think, is the cancer of the caregiver's soul, and it creates this great guilt that we have, and if we just can put our heads on the pillow and say we did our best then maybe the guilt will dissipate
1: part of us wants to do our best part of us wants to kill
0: them. <laughs> well that's true and as soon as that happens as soon as you feel those kind of rageful feelings as i think go to psychology today and put your zip code in and find a good therapist or pick up the phone call the area agency on aging find a great therapist or go to the well-met charitable foundation and look for a caregiver sos Because you know from your gut that that's not right, that that rage is not right, and it's telling us something about ourselves that we need to attend to ASAP.
2: Well, I mean, I I think the word that you used, being self-aware. So, you know, caregiving, we've talked about in the past, it's the marathon, it's not a race. Um, And over this, you know, the course of taking care of someone, you're going to get hit with a lot of different emotions in standing back and saying, how am I feeling? What am I feeling? And am I do you know, do I need help with any of this is probably a good idea just to kind of, you know, test the winds of how things are going every once in a while.
0: Well, and if you with a therapist, Carol, you can actually turn anger into kind of productive assertiveness. I mean, you don't have to sit there with this type of rage. Uh, it shouldn't be a cue to attack the other person. You can actually, like you said, when you become aware and start transforming and working with a third party, you can actually use this anger for purposeful reasons and actually set up a, a self-care plan. Like, I'm not taking good enough care of myself. I do have too much guilt. And there's things I can do to help myself. And that's ways to redirect the anchor.
1: Bingo. Got to stop you right there. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. Appreciate it. Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 930 AM, The Answer, Sundays at 6 PM.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.